Uh, so we're going to be starting out in John chapter 20 today, and mainly covering chapter 21. Um, but first, let's open a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be here, safe and sound, with leadership. We thank you for the opportunity to be able to study your word closer and benefit from each other. And we, we just ask that you bless this time to our uh, edification and that we understand and learn more. We bring this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so as we've been doing, I think it's important to understand the entire context of the book of John. So at this point, we've read the vast majority of the book of John together. So we will start out in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31. Um, very familiar couple of verses that we've read quite a few times as we go through the book of John, because this is the summary of the purpose of this book. And then from there, we'll just read straight through to the end of the book of John. So John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. Jesus did many other miracles, miraculous signs, and threatened his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that he may believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and that, people, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Alright, so again, the purpose of this book... Um, as we said, John is not meant to be a um, standard time-based narrative like the other Gospels are set up. Um, all the Gospels are set to are set up to state specific themes, but as we look at the differences between the Gospel and the different emphases, the different stories, the different parables, the different teachings of Jesus that are laid out, um, John uh, wrote his Gospel explicitly to fill a different role than the other Gospels did. Um, and he he explains it by how many different things Jesus did during his years of ministry. Um, but he explicitly chose these to fit this narrative of understanding who Jesus is, why we should believe in him, and what the results of that belief are. Let's go ahead and read chapter 21, starting with verses 1 through 6. Disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but 
but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got on on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and placed fish on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Now this is the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And 15 through 17. They had finished eating. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my land. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Verse 18. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Verses 18 through 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Yes. And uh, verse 21 through 25. Peter asked Jesus, What about him, Lord? Jesus replied, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? That's for you. Follow me. So the rumor spread among the community of believers that this disciple wouldn't die. But that isn't what Jesus said at all. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This disciple is the one who testifies to these events and has recorded them here. And we know that his account of these things is accurate. Jesus also did many of the things. If they were all written down, I suppose the whole world could not contain the book that would be written. Alright, so this is the conclusion of the book of John. So I'd like to start out in verse 1 and spend a little bit of time on this discussion of uh, Christ manifesting himself. We see in verse 1, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples of the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Or another translation there could be, he made himself visible. Um, we see that, that God can explicitly make himself visible humankind at various times for various reasons, whether that's known or unknown. Um, one, one really well-known example of that is um, when God manifested himself to Moses. For that, we'll look real quick at Exodus chapter 33, verses 17 through 23. 
Now, just to see the contrast between that appearance and this appearance. Exodus. And the Lord said unto Moses, I will do this thing also that thou hast spoken. For thou hast found grace in my sight, and I know thee by name. And he said, I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. And will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is God's coming. There is a place by me, and thou shalt stand upon the rock. And it shall come to pass, while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in a cleft of the rock, and will cover thee with my hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. But here we see God revealing himself in all his glory in a way that is incomprehensible and would destroy Moses if he even saw it. Um, and, of course, we know Jesus is God, and, and he's manifested himself this way. But there we see God in his full spiritual form. You know, here we're seeing Christ still uh, manifested in the flesh, but obviously showing more more of his glory and exercising more of his power as God. We know from the interaction with Thomas in chapter 20 that he had a physical form. You know, he wasn't he wasn't a ghost. We see that you know he could pass through a door. He wasn't he wasn't stopped by mere physical uh, obstacles anymore. But at the same time, um, Thomas could you know touch his hands and feet. He could put his hand in his scars. He could feel. Christ. He could see that he was real. Um, you know, he could he could cook a breakfast for the disciples here. So he is is still manifesting himself in a way that they can see and interact with him. Um, and Jesus had already promised that he would he would disclose or manifest himself um, to to the disciples and then to us as believers during the Last Supper. Um, perhaps not in such a literal way for us. Um, but we are, we are promised in the same way that, that um, Jesus manifested himself towards the disciples as a, a showing that he fulfilled his promises. In the same way we could trust that God, that Jesus will, will disclose himself to us. I'd like to look at John chapter 14. We're going to be here for a little bit, so please flip over to it. But we're going to look at John chapter 14. Um, just as... Christ rising from the dead in a physical sense and having this physical body that we can touch is a fulfillment of the promise, is proof of the promise that we will be resurrected, not just a ghost floating around or a spiritual presence in heaven, but a true, actual, resurrected, perfect body like we were supposed to receive from the beginning, like God gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before the fall. In the same way, this manifestation here, this appearance to the, the disciples, is physical proof that he will fulfill his promise. And a large part of this promise is contained here in, in this teaching in the Last Supper. So 
remember this is the final Passover. This is the final um, time that Jesus is sitting down and talking with his disciples and preparing him for this time where he is going to suffer, he's going to die, and he's going to rise again. From this room, he's going straight to the Garden of Gethsemane to be arrested and tried. In John chapter 14, he is comforting his disciples as he knows the travails they're about to go through. Let's start reading in verses 7 through 10 as he talks about this, this promise of his continued presence even after he leaves them. 7 through 10. Verse 7. If, if you had really known me, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know me and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the father and you will be satisfied. Jesus replied, yeah. Have I been with you this, all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the father. So why are you asking me to show me to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Obviously, when the disciples want to see the Father, you know, they're thinking in terms of this glorious appearance to Moses, where, you know, they figure if they were to see God, you know, it would be so overwhelming that it would be this, this you know, instantly life-changing event. But the reality is, they have seen God, and it has been a life-changing event. Like many other things, it's not in the way they picture, right? We're going to look at how Peter has changed, you know, later in this chapter. And what that turns them into, you know, from someone who's physically brave and wants to follow Jesus to someone who understands what that cost is and understands his own failings, who doesn't have this overrated opinion of himself anymore, who's not the same way, but now can truly love and follow Christ, even through hard times because he's had this experience. In the same way that Jesus has been preparing his disciples over these three years of ministry, and then again in this Last Supper, preparing them, changing them, altering their lives, turning them into the instruments that will grow his church. Let's continue reading in verses 11 through 15. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father, and whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, so the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And 16 through 20. And I pray the Father, and, and he will give you another helper, and he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and will be will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, 
you will live also. At, at that day you will know you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. So like many other prophecies in Scripture, this one has both an immediate meaning and it has a more general meaning. I think most of us, when we read this, we rightly read this as being towards us. But John is writing his gospel at the end of his life. You know, he is the last one alive, as far as we know at this point, that has actually seen Christ in the flesh, one of the very few. Um, Certainly the last of the disciples that's alive that received this promise directly. So John got to see Christ literally and truly. And and we know from how Paul explains when he talks about, you know, the witnesses to Christ's resurrection. He says, you know, it's not just my word that you have to go on. You know, there's there's all the apostles and there's 500 of the disciples that saw Christ when he was alive. (laughs) Thanks. We don't see it documented in any of the Gospels directly, this, this larger appearance when he appeared to a large body of the believers. Or perhaps when he came to the upper room, there's a lot of people who were gathered there with the disciples, and that wasn't something that the, the Gospel writers put in. Uh, but Paul expressed that in a way that, you know, if you really wanted to, to double-check that, these guys were still alive. You could go to Jerusalem or other places that these 500 had gone to, and you could track these guys down, and you could see if Paul was making it up or not. So, just as only the disciples, only the believers saw Christ after his resurrection, uh, we're, not, we're not told that any non-believer saw him. He wasn't just walking around making a big scene in downtown Jerusalem, thumbing his nose at the Pharisees, saying, what are you going to do to me? He appeared to believers. He appeared to believers that he selected at specific times. We see that he appeared on the road to Emmaus, just, there he is. Nobody else saw him. Um, and they didn't even recognize him because he clouded their eyes until it was time for them to understand who he was. We see that he appeared, and here we see he manifested himself. He made himself visible. And that is a promise for us, that although we don't have his physical presence, we don't have him, you know, like Thomas wanted to, you know, touch him. Unless he touched him and saw the scars and knew that it was him, and he had really died and really come back to life, he wouldn't believe. Jesus says, how much more blessed are those who don't see me and yet believe? That is a proof that we can see God, we can see Jesus, and therefore know the Father. He will manifest himself to us even though he's not physically present. Let's uh, finish reading out this passage in the book of John, chapter 14, by reading verses 21 through 23. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. We will come to them and make our home with them. Again, this relates to you know the fruit, like, like we talked about last week. This love for God will result in this fruit, and God will know us through uh, indwelling us. All right. Um, 
so we'll, we'll get a little bit into original language and stuff, but times like this, I, I wish I could read the Greek and really see what, what it's talking about here when it, says, when it talks about manifesting and it could be related as made himself visible, and then compare it to some of these other times in Scripture where it talks about God making himself visible, manifesting himself. Um, you know, I, I think that that John is clearly drawing a parallel with this passage and how Jesus later appeared to them in a physical sense. Um, you know, obviously this isn't meant to be as literal in our case. Um, we know also that there will be false Christs who appear. Uh, I'd like to look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 24 through 27. False Christs and false prophets will appear before the great signs here both to deceive even the elect. That was possible. See, I've told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the desert, do not go out. Or here he is, in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man. So we know that after Jesus' ascension to heaven, he will not appear to us in a physical sense until there is no question in anybody's mind that it is really Christ appearing. There will be no questions, there will be no doubts, there will no, be no, well, is that really him? Or no, he's, he's not going to be David Koresh appearing to his electric group of followers. <laughs> He is going to appear in a way that nobody on earth will be able to doubt or question. But until that time, um, he appears within our hearts. All right, let's continue looking at this passage. Um, we see them going out to the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee. Tiberias was a major um, town that was founded um, on the Sea of Galilee. Um, if you remember... Um, Capernaum and the area that he normally preached on was more to the north and Tiberius was more on the west. So we see that Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, or the twin, and Nathaniel of Canaan and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee, so that's uh, John and Andrew, and two others of his disciples were together. So probably not the apostles, but other disciples. So Simon, you know, back in the leader mode, says, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Why do you think they went fishing? Yeah. Fair enough. I, I mean, I, I know some people are kind of down on them for just kind of, you know, going back into their old habits and such. You know, one thing I thought of as I was preparing this lesson is, um, who had the money bag? Who had the money bag of the disciples? Judas. Judas. So probably not a lot of money left over at this point, right? So they had to make a living, right? And Jesus had appeared to them, yes, but he had tasked them to wait. At this point, they had not received that commission. Uh, they, they were instructed to wait until he sent down the Holy Spirit onto them. Even after the Great Commission was sent out, again, their task was to wait and prepare and be ready for the Holy Spirit to come upon them, and then fulfill that commission. Um, 
you know, they, they didn't have the gifting of Pentecost, they didn't have money, so they went out and they, they stayed together, which was what Jesus wanted. They stayed together, they didn't just scatter to the winds, they stayed together. Verses 5 through 11. So Jesus said to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast it down on the right-hand side of the boat, you will find a catch. So they cast, and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, so John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land, full of large fish, 153. And although there are so many, the net was not torn. So what, is, what does this tell us? What are some things this tells us about Peter? So there's a lot going on in these few verses. He was anxious to see the Lord again. Absolutely. He couldn't wait for the boat to get to land. And it was, it was his idea to go fishing in the first place, right? Yeah. I know oh, you I'm saw it. I was laughing because, I mean, you know, he throws himself into the the sea with all his clothes on gets them all soaking no even more than that he puts on his clothes to go swimming that's what I, yeah that's what I mean he could have just jumped in with his work stuff and uh yeah I know you all know yeah, but don't you normally take your clothes off to go swimming <laughs> so what, but what does that tell us about Peter's attitude he was ready to see the Lord again he yeah. anxious to see him they respected him. Yes. He yes. He sees a need for formality here, right? You know, he's 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 just doing his his work thing. You know, he's got his shirt off. You know, um, and, and he feels this need to, for formality when he realizes that it is Jesus who's the one that's there. So he does something that's completely illogical. Otherwise, he puts on his outfit. And then he goes swimming to shore. Well, still a little bit illogical, let's be honest there. That was Peter. Yep. What else do you guys see here about Peter? part of what's setting up the context for the conversation that he has with Jesus after this. I think it, that I think that's the reply, yeah. So do you think he could swim faster than they could row the boat? <laughs> I, I'm just, it just never occurred to me, because I mean, yeah, a hundred yards? Yeah, because they had yeah. fish on their boat. Yeah, if they had yeah. fish, probably, yeah. with all the fish, because they didn't want to leave those. Yeah. Yeah, so it sounds like he didn't meet a, beat him my bunch. Well, another thing, this there was so many fish that it almost sank the boat, and the net should have broken, but it didn't. And who does it say hauled the fish up onto land? By himself. So, you know, we have this image throughout the Gospels of, you know, this big, tough guy. Well, yeah, that's probably true. Because he's hauling these 153 big fish up on the land all by himself because he's so excited. So, you know, it's, it's just... 
it just tells us so much about Peter and his personality and his build and everything, just with, with all these actions here. So we see they come up and they, they eat with Jesus. This is the third time that he's manifested. And we see this conversation. Um, this is the other other point where, you know, it's, there's a lot going on with this conversation. You don't really get the full sense of English because we don't have enough words for love in the English language. There are actually two different words for love that are being used here. Um, and fortunately, this is pretty well known because uh, I don't speak Greek. Um, eventually, plan is to, but not yet. Uh, so, a few different types of love. I'll just I'll just give uh, real simple explanations here. This is just off the internet, so you know there, there's obviously a lot more contextually to, to this, but just kind of a, a basic summary: six different kinds of love that the Greeks considered. So, eros was the sexual passion and desire. Uh, which kind of implied kind of a disturbing loss of control, like falling madly in love, but kind of in a bad sense, like not really good uh, connotation to it. Philia is this deep friendship, you know, kind of like a band of brothers feel. You know, Philios would be, um, you know, the the deep comradeship that you'd have, um, you know, between people who had you know, gone through a hard time together and were, were really close. Um, Ludos is sort of a playful love, like, you know, casual affection between children. You know, like children have all, you know, their big circle of friends or, you know, maybe like flirting um, in early dating. Um, pragma is sort of a long-standing patient love, like, you know, you see in a couple that's been together for 50 years and you know, maybe they're not they're not madly in love anymore, and you know, maybe they they have they haven't. You know, they're not like one of those amazing couples that you know they just do everything together and they're so attached and they're still acting like they're in high school. But you know, they they have this deep respect and and uh, affection for each other. Um, Philadia is self love, um, sort of like you know you need you need uh, uh, sort of or respect for yourself before you can have respect for others sort of feel. And then finally, we have a word that was not often used by the Greeks, which is agape. It's selfless love. It implies empathy and charity. And it is self-sacrificing love. So the word that Jesus uses, obviously they're speaking Aramaic, but this is written in Greek. Jesus is using the word agape. Peter you selflessly, unconditionally love me? And would you do anything for me without thought of your own good? Peter answers, you know that I fill you. You You know that I have this deep comradeship and affection for you. And, you know, I really like, like you and respect you. And, you know, we've been through so much together. That, that's kind of the feeling. How do you think Peter would have answered before he denied Jesus? Of course. Of course I, I'd do anything for you, Jesus. You know that. Now he's come to the self-realization that that's not true. 
he doesn't selflessly love Jesus in the way that he thought he did. He would not do anything for Jesus, even though he told Jesus to his face that he would. And Peter was brave, you know, he was willing to lay down his life when it was a ta- when it was a time for a physical fight. He pulled a sword when, you know, he wasn't a trained soldier and they only had two swords among them, but he pulled out that sword and he would have taken on that whole mob of hundreds of trained soldiers and, and other thugs by himself. But when it came time to stand up and be brave among among peers, when, when it was just a cold blood, he couldn't do it. So he has the skill. He knows that he's not who he thought he was. He doesn't have the strength of character that he thought he was. And he doesn't think that he can selflessly love Jesus in the way that he thought he did and thought he should. So he answers, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So Jesus says, tend my lambs, shepherd my flock, feed my sheep. Peter will eventually pay with his life, stand up for Christ and not deny him to the point of death, crucifixion no less. But right now his call was to feed the sheep. And Peter does go on to bravely do that. He's come to this realization of who he is, and he wants to grow into what Christ sees of him. And he does learn agape love, but it is through this, what, what he sees and, as this betrayal of Jesus, this inability to stand up. You know, he's shown over and over that he's devoted to Jesus, right? He's the one who stands up and says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, that bold proclamation. You know, he's shown his physical bravery. He's led the disciples. He's kept them together. And he shows it through action. But again, Jesus asks that he shows this love through his actions. Not through his words, because that's what Peter did before. He showed through his words. You know, all the... I will die for you. There's, there's a movie quote. Um, you know, the, if you've ever seen the movie Inside Out, there's this you know ideal love interest that's in in the main character's brain that says, "I would die for you, Riley." You know, like that idealized boyfriend. But this is this is what Peter thought he would do. He thought he was that you know that perfect friend, and he wasn't. Jesus says, "Action is what I need." This is how you show my love, obey my commandments. Peter at least knows that Christ trusts him to care for the sheep. And he ultimately answers that Christ knows all things. Christ knows. Christ knows whether Peter can love him in that way. But he's not going to make the mistake of just saying these words that he thinks what Jesus wants to hear. You know, even though he knows it's hurting him and it's hurting Jesus to not say that he loves him in a selfless way, but he's not going to lie to himself with Christ anymore. And this this motivates him, right? This motivates him to show his love through his actions and boldly stand up in front of that crowd of Pentecost and obey Christ even to the point of death. Peter learned not to boast of his devotion, but that action is what matters. We miss so we miss a lot of this in English, and you know footnotes help and all, but uh, translation is really hard, and it is hard to capture all the nuances in a different language. You know, trying to trying to translate idiom and the contextual meanings, things that we understand at a cultural level, 
these words. They have a straightforward translation into another word, but really have so much more going on to them, whether it's, you know, an ironic or sarcastic meaning or, you know, there, there's some sort of culture reference that's tied up in that word. Um, you know, it, it's tough. Uh, there, we've, we saw an interesting quote when we were looking at this last night. Martin Luther, um, you know, founder of the Reformation, actually said the large portion of the Reformation was came about due to going back to the original languages instead of just reading the Latin Vulgate, which was a translation that had been used for a long time by the church. <coughs> it was ultimately just a translation with weaknesses and man's interpretation on Scripture. So... Uh, Martin Luther wrote, If we neglect the, the languages, the original languages of Hebrew and Greek, we shall eventually lose the gospel. No sooner did men cease to cultivate the languages and Christendom decline, until, even until it fell under the undisputed dominion of the Pope. But no sooner was this torch relighted than this papal owl fled with a shriek and a congenial gloom. If languages had not made me positive as to the true meaning of the word, I might still have remained a chained monk engaged in quietly preaching Romish errors in the obscurity of a cloister. The Pope, the Sophists, and their anti-Christian empire would have remained unshaken. Yeah, another great example of how this this failure to, to understand to you know either know the languages or go to, go to experts who, who know the languages, go to you know study material. And not just reading, reading the Bible, but also looking at study material, commentaries, uh, looking at different sources, um, is an example of some wordplay that Jesus uses. Again, related to Peter. So let's look real quick at Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesar, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah and one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Roman Catholic Church of, um, translate this, translates this passage, or the official interpretation of this passage, is that Jesus is saying that Simon Peter is the rock upon which Christ will build his church. I, Simon Peter, as the first bishop of Rome, which is tradition, not a scripture, could be true, could not be. Um, and then, therefore, all his descendants in that office down to are the rock upon which Christ will build his church. In other words, a, a straight reading without understanding the nuances of the words here could imply that the entire church is built upon the Pope. So we should all be Catholic, right? 
Well, what Jesus is using here is, if you look in the Greek, this is a wordplay. So remember, Peter is a nickname that Jesus gave to Simon when he became his disciple. So he says, I say to you that you are Peter. Peter means a stone. So like uh, a rock, or like a, a small rock. Yep. Like a, you know, like a cornerstone size, maybe, or, you know, a really big pebble. When he says, upon this rock, I will build my church, he uses the word uh, Petros or Petra, which is a gigantic rock formation or bedrock. So he is referring not to Peter as the rock upon which he will build his church, but he's referring to this bold statement that the church will proclaim that you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the rock upon which the church is built. We don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah if we just believe he's a good teacher. We don't believe that he is the Son of the living God if we believe that he's just this, you know, being that God imbued with, you know, maybe some special wisdom or he was just another and the greatest of the prophets or, or any of these other things. Then that is not the church. Because the church is built upon the bedrock. You know, think of Petra, you know, the gigantic city that's built, that's carved straight into the rock, and it's all one solid piece, the entire city. And it's part of this huge formation. Think of the bedrock upon which, you know, the, the house must be built. Otherwise, it's on sinking sand, it'll be washed away by the storm. The rock upon which the church is built is that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So not understanding the nuances in the language can lead us to totally misunderstanding in a way that has caused generations of heresy in the church and, and misunderstanding and dependence upon man and tradition instead of the rock of scripture and his proclamation. So just a little wordplay causes all that misconception. So we see Jesus talks, continues to talk to Peter. He predicts the matter of, matter of Christ's death. Again, we see by the time that um, John is writing this gospel, Peter has already died. He has already been martyred. Um, he's died on the cross, and tradition says that um, he has to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be killed in the same way as Jesus and he talks to John, and um, you know P- Peter and John were were really close. You know they were part of that core group of disciples that were with Jesus everywhere he went, even to the Transfiguration. We see, you know, when they were first called back in chapter two of John, um, you know John is standing with a couple of disciples, and one of those apparently is the the Apostle John. <clears throat> Um, and the other one was Andrew, who was Simon Peter's brother. So Simon Peter's brother, Andrew, and John, who wrote the book of John, are the two that are hanging out with John the Baptist and turn to follow Jesus. And then Andrew, who's John's friend, immediately goes and grabs Peter and brings him to Christ and says, we have found the Messiah. So these guys have known each other for a long time. Um, you know, they've long been interested in the things of God. And... The first person that Andrew thought of 
that, you know, when he got all excited and realized he found the Messiah was, hey, I'm going to go grab Peter and bring him into this crowd too. So Peter asks about John. Jesus says, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, the same went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. And Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. All right. So that basically concludes our study of the book of John, and I wanted to see what comments you guys have. Yeah, going back to the uh, <clears throat> supernatural uh, fishing incident, yeah. um, there, there's a whole lot there, I mean, yeah. that we just barely touched on. Um, but looking at uh, verse 11 uh, of, um, of 21, so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net to land full of large fish. 153 of them, and though there were so many of them, the net was not torn. Well, a very long time ago, I used to listen to Oral Roberts, and I, I don't now, because yeah. he's not alive anymore, but uh, he said something quite interesting. He said, back in that day, he said, um, there were known to the people that were educated of that day, 153 species of fish, which I'm assuming were kosher. Now you notice there's nothing here that says about any of the fish being lost. So, okay, the, the net was not torn, okay? Uh, also, you see, you don't see anywhere where it says that they picked out certain fish and threw them away. So Jesus was the one that provided those 153 fish in that net. Now to me, now I've never read any commentators on this, um, so I don't know what any of them say about verse 11, but to me that could be a, um, a further vindication of eternal security. And... Um, because of the fact that none were thrown away, the net was not torn, and, you know, so, I mean, none was lost. <coughs> to me, that's quite significant. Uh, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, certainly, you know, Jesus is, it's not captured in the book of John, but Jesus had told Peter that he would make him a fisher of men. And so, it, you know, they've been fishing all night on the left side of the boat, apparently. But it's the right side of the boat you have to, to fish on. I think Jesus is clearly showing him that, you know, as he's going out and fishing and, you know, he's trying to, trying to catch people, that he can never do it on his own power. It's only with Christ he'll succeed. And if you try to do it in your own strength, you can cast out all you want, you know, and you, all you have to do is trust Christ and obey him. And Christ is the one who brings the increase. You know, he doesn't guarantee that we'll catch 153 fish every time, and he doesn't guarantee what our harvest will be or what it looks like. Some will sow, some will 
plant or water and some will reap the harvest. But he does promise that it is with his help that we will succeed. Yeah. Well, I go to kind of back to where you were talking about people thinking Peter being the cornerstone of the church and reap the rock of the church of the Yep. And that being the type of heresy. I think it isn't necessarily the verse that leads to the stray because he is the one that took the action moved by the Spirit. And just like it said within in John 14, as the Father is in Christ, and Christ is in us. And that Spirit will come to you and embody you, and you will do greater things than He did. So He held His commandment. You know, He, he went by His teachings and did these things. Yep. And it was God that did it, it wasn't Him. Yep. The problem is when people attribute what happened to him as a person, yep. not to the God or God that is in him. So he really was, as far as the person that took the actions with the Holy Spirit to build the church, everything he did, really, he was consequential to that. Yeah. But it wasn't him himself, it was God with Yeah, and certainly we see. Jesus was specifically preparing him through this time and others to be that first speaker at Pentecost, right? That one that would start the church, the, Jer- the Jerusalem church, which, so we have, you know, the church throughout the world, which came from the persecution of that, that gigantic first church in Jerusalem that was then scattered, which came from um, the people that were gathered in by that first sermon, which was Peter. All the disciples received the Holy Spirit at that time, um, not necessarily just the apostles, but it sounds like um, a lot more disciples were gathered there at that time for the feast. But Peter is that one who gave that first address to the crowd and called on them to believe, and that was, in a sense, the foundation of the church. So certainly there is that meaning as well. Yeah. I think he goes right back to the fishing analogy. Yep. Peter's out there, he knows how to fish. Yep. Right yep. He's not catching Yep. It's not until God speaks to do it this way, does it, and see. Yeah. So, you know, the same person doing the action is being led by the Spirit that produces the fruit. Yeah, that's a fair point. Not just words, not just action, but God-led, Spirit-filled action. Um. I want to just talk about the idea of manifesting. Yep. Because you see, particularly with this, um, with like Gen Zers or younger millennials, you, you kind of get this Buddhist mentality of being able to manifest yourself and your will over things. Not, not a... I'm sure that was a thing for the hippies back in the 70s, Right, right. And I mean, obviously, Buddhism's been around a lot longer than the hippies were. So, I mean, we have this idea throughout history of mankind being able to manifest their will over their circumstances to do what they want. You know, that works-based progress towards whether it's if they view it as salvation or whatever, you see that's a very secular viewpoint of 
people wanting to work and manifest things in their lives. And it's, and it's very, you know, it, it's good to remember this when witnessing that true manifesting is doing something of yourself where, you know, God in his divine nature can appear from nowhere. He is so powerful that Christ rose from the dead. He manifested life, and he rose from the dead, and that's not something that any person can do. And so I think it's very interesting when you're out witnessing or speaking with people, in, especially now in younger generations, because that, that is a word that is used very frequently. Like, oh, I'm manifesting peace. I'm, I'm manifesting good vibes today. It, 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 they just use that word a lot. It's, it's a very hip word, I guess, right now especially. And, and it's good to, you know, focus in on, you know, real manifestation is what Jesus does right here when he makes himself appear where he wasn't before. It's not us being able to work and work and work and achieve nirvana or achieve our own salvation like like almost like the Mormon idea of where you do your good works and then if you keep doing this after you die you'll manifest as a God yourself this is solely reserved to the Trinity the Holy Spirit manifesting himself in us when we become believers you know it's just, it's very different, and I think it's good to have that clear in our minds when we are witnessing. Yeah, going back to John 14, when Christ says, obey my commandments, those who love me will obey my commands, we don't manifest Christ in us, Christ manifests himself in us. This house yeah. Okay. things 
He will cause you to recall everything I have told you. Peace I leave with you. My own peace I now give and bequeath to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me tell you I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you really loved me, you would have been glad because I am going to the Father. For the Father is greater and mightier than I am. And now I have told you before it occurs, so that it does, so that when it does take place, you may believe and have faith and rely on me. I will not talk with you much more, for the Prince of the world is coming, and he has no claim on me. But Satan is coming, and I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know and be convinced that I love the Father, and that I do only what the Father has instructed me to. Rise, let us go away from here. So that was the final teaching that Jesus gave his disciples before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. All right, I think that's a good place to conclude. So um, let's go ahead and close the prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the book of John and all the incredible lessons that you have for us. We pray that you would help us as we study your word to uh, go beyond just the surface meaning. You, that you would um, that you would enlighten it with your Holy Spirit. You help us to seek out more to really understand um, the incredible plan that you have for us. We pray that you'd help help us to live that out in our lives and help others to believe in you just as we have as well. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.